the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into Hour 2 of our daily three-hour tour. It is a privilege and honor to bring to the show, welcome to the show, Russ Vaught. For those of you that uh, may be unfamiliar with him, I, I well, I've known Russ for about six years, or at least I met him about six years ago at a Claremont Institute event, if we're still allowed to say that, I'm not sure. But Russ was the director of the Office of Management and Budget in Donald Trump's cabinet and is now the president of the Center for Renewing America. He's got some really interesting ideas on border solutions and a lot of other things. Russ, welcome to the show, and uh, it's nice to talk to you again. Same here. Thanks for having me, Seth. You betcha. You betcha. I want to talk about... uh, uh, a few things, including uh, you and Ken Cuccinelli's idea for the governors in the border. But before I do that, my bad, but probably your first time on this show as memory serves. Tell the audience a little bit about yourself, any autobiography you want. No, I appreciate that. So, you know, I've always spent 12 years in, in public policy on the Hill and uh, spent a lot of time in the grassroots and then had the privilege to work for Donald Trump and, and being part of uh, a really historic administration and doing what we said to the American people, what he promised to the American people. And our real belief is in setting up the organization that we did, and that's the Center for Renewing America, is what you see you saw last night in Virginia. And that is we have failed to focus on cultural issues on the right, the center-right movement, uh, to our detriment. And it has divorced our, our leaders from the issues that matter most. And we just saw when issues are well-framed, messaged well, what can happen when people fight on those cultural issues? We can win, and we can win across the country. So that's what we're doing right now. Um, And we've got a lot of, uh, we're trying to institutionalize the cultural fights and make sure that policymakers have the ideas, credible ideas, the know-how to be able to execute these things when they have opportunities in, in, in red states that we see here in Arizona. Thank you for that, Russ. And yes, Center for Renewing America is where he's president now. Let me give out the website for anyone who might be interested in learning more or helping out there. AmericaRenewing.com. AmericaRenewing.com. I'm glad you, you transitioned to the Virginia race a little bit. I wanted to get your take on it. It is interesting you point out this cultural issue a lot of Republicans, I don't know why exactly, but they seem to feel like, what, they got their fingers burnt with it sometime in the 1990s and never kind of wanted to touch it again. I've analyzed this a little bit, and, I, and, and I'm perplexed by it, quite honestly. A lot of it stemmed out of some speech Pat Buchanan gave in Houston in 1992, I guess it was, but the only cultural thing he discussed there was supporting the police, which is interesting enough in its own right. And when you think about successful national Republicans, um, Donald Trump, Ronald Reagan, even to an extent George Bush early on with the welfare and poverty issues, George W. Bush, 
these were cultural conservatives. These were conservatives who campaigned on cultural messages, right? Am I wrong? Am I getting this wrong? I don't think you are. And I think there's two things going on. Number one, I think the political class, the consultant class, uh, in many respects, the uh, politicians that were in charge at that time, the Bush years, didn't just like the, they didn't like those issues yeah. to, to a large degree. Um, and they were, in some respects, repulsed by the agenda of folks that, like Pat Buchanan, were bringing to the table. Yeah, right. And anytime someone's on the other side from a policy standpoint, they use uh, tactics to be able to kind of hype up the, the potential for fear and risk. And then you've got a whole next order of individuals, politicians, potential leaders who are afraid of taking on these issues because no one wants to wake up and 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 find that they've been called a racist right. or a bigot right. uh, or some kind of phobe. And so uh, the combination of those two things has largely kept it off of the agenda setting process in this country. And I think that's what, honestly, Donald Trump changed and what we're trying to build and institutionalize going forward. We're talking to Russ Vaught. He is the president of the Center for Renewing America, most recently the director of the Office of Management and Budget uh, in the Trump uh, administration. Russ, the Democrats kind of understand this maybe better than we Republicans or a lot of Republicans in the sense that they kind of brush everything we ever want to talk about or raise or argue with them about. They kind of they kind of like to put that into a box of that's a cultural issue or that's a wedge cultural issue or that's a fake cultural issue, knowing that there will be a large, what would you say, retraction from many Republicans for wanting to keep going there. They know the Democrats know how to silence certain Republicans on this stuff. But when you think about these issues, the kind of stuff that got Reagan Democrats, the kind of stuff that got Donald Trump elected, let's talk immigration for a minute. They want to call it a cultural issue. I don't care what you call it. It's about our national sovereignty. It's about reducing crime. It's about reducing drugs. And it's about what every country in the world, whether they are cultural or acultural Philistines has, which is the obligation to protect its border. What am I missing here? Not much. I mean, I, I actually put last night, um, I clicked on MSNBC to kind of get the reaction, and it was interesting. They were actually bemoaning the fact that Republicans were waging battle on these cultural issues, that this wasn't just a disagreement about tax rates and regulatory right. reform, right. all legitimate things to be concerned about, sure. but it was, in fact, uh, beyond the pale that we would uh, approach issues that they have longed to turn up the burner on any time that our side has approached the stove. Um, and I think that's what, you know, what, what what's interesting about this, and I put this out on Twitter today, was it's not just that Virginia and Youngkin leaned into the cultural issues. And I think there's a supermajority out there on these issues to, for the Republican Party. It's that the fear tactics didn't work. They have basically made it a mockery of the, the notion of, of our side being racist to the point where now they can't even use it. The sword is now directed at themselves. So when they say this, they wound themselves and our people are emboldened and find them to be laughable. And I think that's what is so encouraging about yesterday and why I really believe it is a sea change. It's obviously just one governor's race in Virginia, you know, but I think it's much more than that. It, it is. It is both a strategic concept that can win permanently, but it is also the fortification of a movement 
that is ready to, to roll back and save the country from what the left is, has thrown at it for decades. I, I, I think you're right. More importantly, I hope you're right. <laughs> More importantly, I hope you're right, because I don't always think right, but I hope you're right. Well, let's stay with immigration for a second, Russ. Uh, that was initially uh, what I was reaching out to you on, an interesting study you guys did at uh, the Center for Renewing America, you and Ken Cuccinelli and, 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 and the rest of your organization, on the role governors can play. We had a governor's election. We're touting it in Virginia. They may not have the illegal immigration issue that a lot of uh, we border states have, but you wrote about how governors can take up this fight and fight to protect our country and our borders. You want to say something about that? Yeah. So we, we put out a paper under the premise that Biden administration is not going to just wake up and start enforcing the border. We know they need to. We know that they have inflicted this debacle on our country, that it's a neon light to the world to come through our southern border. Uh, it is a major problem. And so given the fact that we can't this this administration is not going anywhere for at least three years and that courts are often unreliable, what can governors do? And what we went about is to look back at the Constitution and to say, what are the remedies that the Constitution provides? And we found one in Article one, Section 10, Clause three, which provides that the states can't do certain things, one of them being engage in war unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit delay. So we call this the self-help remedy under Article 1, Section 10, that allows states, with the, the factual patterns that we are seeing, imminent danger, and in everything in terms of the numbers that we're talking about, is it, it, it's hard not to conclude that it's an invasion in this respect. And we, we suggest that border governors can now take matters into their own hands and invoke this war-making authority under the Constitution to be able to use and active their deployment, their National Guard units, detain and, importantly, return illegal immigrants back across the border. Now, we're, we're very clear. This is not uh, federal immigration law. This is a separate uh, self-help remedy under the Constitution that can be invoked and, you know, governors have done uh, have begun to step up to the plate in, in, in deploying their National Guard. But to what end? And, you know, in Texas, they're they're suggesting that, you know, this will be people will be detained on criminal trespass. But what we know is that, you know, that only lasts for a couple of months and then they're released, even if they're prosecuted to the hilt. And people will continue to come to America if they know they will be released and you have an effective catch and release program. And so what we're saying is governors need to take it upon themselves to secure the border and to take any action that's necessary to defend their states from what we're seeing the Biden administration cause. Do you uh, do you sense that the governors on the border states are as concerned about illegal immigration as, say, well, someone in your position is or someone who has studied this issue and, and knows the numbers and, and sees what's going on. Do you sense the governors are in the same space as you are or do you sense that uh, that they are they're not quite there yet or they're or they're not really looking to do something quite yet? I don't think it's a matter of are they concerned as much as we are about where we are on the border. You know, I think they've, they're governors. They've had to deal with this. It's not a good situation. I think where, where, where the challenge is that 
is our side has been unwilling to go back to the drawing board and dust off the Constitution and look, given what time it is in this country and the seriousness of the moment, what options do we have on the table? And it's a skill set we developed in the Trump administration because we had that kind of president. And I think that's what this moment requires is to say, okay, we're just not going to go off of business as usual. We're going to take aggressive action that's going to create constitutional conflict. And we are going to do that because we believe the Constitution gives us that authority and we because it's vital for the moment that we are facing. This isn't five, ten years ago. This is, uh, you know, a situation where we're having record, record numbers of fentanyl come across the border and a million illegal immigrants just this calendar year alone. And I think that's where we've got a lot of work to do with our legal community on the right and with our policymakers on the right is to say, look, we have credible, no knowledgeable uh, ways that you can take a more aggressive line and the moment demands it. I want to direct people to AmericaRenewing.com to look up this Cuccinelli memo you folks distributed because it gives all the, um, you know, it gives all the provisos and, and, and all the justifications that you're speaking about on the show today. Let me ask you, Russ, in, 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 if I can ask you to – let me ask you to put on your hat as director of OMB or former director of OMB for a moment and, and, and have you – as this country is debating spending gobs and gobs of money – on all kinds of services necessary and I think in many cases unnecessary. What's the cost of illegal immigration? What does it do to our budget? What is what is the cost of all of this? You know, ballpark. I know you haven't probably looked at and crunched these numbers in a long time. But when you add things from crime to health care to law enforcement, we're talking about an, a, an immigration issue that must be contributing tremendously to our national deficits and debts. Oh, there's no question about it. You know, we're looking at hundreds of billions of dollars in the sense of uh, the impact on schools, the impact on the extensive amount of money that we need to contribute towards, uh, you know, both our board, our, our border security, but also, you know, local law enforcement, uh, the amount of that we were needed to spend to secure with a border wall. Um, it's just a sizable commitment. And, um, you know, there's all sorts of, of money you add to the refugee program and, and what we're spending to be able to uh, provide these people with kind of a, a welfare backpack when they come here. I mean, it, 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 it shocks the conscience uh, when you start to, to put it all together at the federal, state and local level. And, you know, we can't afford it. Communities can't afford it. And I think that's why um, – and it's not good for the people that are involved in the illegal uh, immigration trip. Right. I mean, these are people that are putting themselves in harm's way, putting their kids in harm's way. Yep. Um, and we've and indenturing themselves. And, and, and yeah, I was just going to say an indenturing themselves. Yeah, right. Exactly. So uh, this is, you know, a debacle, not just in the fiscal, not in, in the security sense, but in the true humanitarian perspective. Well, Russ, you're doing great work. I'm glad to see you formed the Center for Renewing America. Uh, AmericaRenewing.com is the website, and I hope this can be a down payment of the first of many returns, sir. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Seth. You betcha, Russ. Uh, Russ, sorry. Nice to be back in touch. Uh, it really is. AmericaRenewing.com. AmericaRenewing.com. And as I said, while you're there, check out the policy brief, How States Can Secure the border. 
I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. I gave my uh, thoughts on what transpired in Virginia last night uh, in the first hour. Uh, by the way, you can get all these things, and I sometimes get requests, uh, but you can get them all at 960 The Patriot. Just go to my um, my show page on that website. While you're there, take a look at this great event we're doing on November 16th with Larry Elder, Dennis Prager, and Charlie Kirk, before it gets sold out, you want to get your tickets. These are the three people I would most want to hear right now, and uh, I'm excited as I'll get out for this event we're doing on November 16th. You'll see um, America for which it stands, that banner over at 960 The Patriot as well. But as I was giving my analysis of what transpired in Virginia, part of what I was speaking about was how the people are often ahead of the elites in the party or the party leadership. People in the conservative movement are often ahead of them uh, and in challenging the establishment, um, it takes a lot of work, but it usually, when in a good cause, does reward itself, pay off and create an establishment anew, a new establishment. Ronald Reagan was not part of the establishment in the Republican Party until he became president and then thus defines and is the titular head of the party, of the movement. But the establishment undermined him as well. Remember, he went after the establishment candidate in 76. He went after Jerry Ford. And it was in the loss of that race at the convention. It came very close. It was in the loss of that race where he spoke for about two minutes extemporaneously when everyone said, we nominated the wrong man. And four years later, they nominated, and we won with the right one. Well, give us that two, two minutes of Ronald Reagan, then. If I could just take a moment and tell... I had an assignment the other day. Someone asked me to write a letter for a time capsule that is going to be opened in Los Angeles 100 years from now. We live in a world in which the great powers have poised and aimed at each other horrible missiles of destruction, nuclear weapons that can, in a matter of minutes, arrive in each other's country and destroy virtually the civilized world we live in. And suddenly it dawned on me, those who would read this letter a hundred years from now will know whether those missiles were fired. They will know whether we met our challenge, whether they have the freedoms that we have known up until now will depend on what we do here. Mr. President, it's a little uh, a little more impactful than what Jerry Ford was saying, which is whip inflation now. Little little more poignant, little more powerful, little more of a hill you can charge and run on. We got it from Newt Gingrich in challenging the establishment when he became the minority whip, overthrowing the old guard in the Republican Party. We got it from the Tea Party in 2010. We got it from Donald Trump in 2016, and we got it from the Mama and Papa Bears in Virginia last night. God bless them all.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. When I'm talking about the mama and papa bears in Loudoun County who gave Virginians the issue of education and gave Americans a wake-up call and an eye-opener as to what was going on in their schools and did so against their own political self-interest living in a deep blue county, so blue that the rest of Virginia took them seriously, but Loudoun County didn't itself. <laughs> Loudoun County itself voted to keep, to uh, elect Terry McAuliffe. I wanted to do this. I did a little bit of it yesterday, but I didn't get nearly halfway as far as I wanted to. Ainsley Earhart sat down with these mama and papa bears from Loudoun County, starting with Asra Nomani, um, who came loaded for other bears, i.e. evidence. Can you give me just a little bit of, of, of what's going on, what was going on in Loudoun County that the rest of Virginia picked up on? CRT in our schools, I'll start with you. Astra right here has been on our show a lot. Look at her shirt. It says Mama and Papa Bear Movement. Yeah. Astra, is CRT in the school? Yeah, these are our revolutionaries. I mean, these are the amazing, brave She's parents that should inspire parents. everyone. And you weren't involved before, right? No, I wasn't. Two years ago, I didn't even know any of my school board members. And then they came after my son's school. They came after the idea of merit and the American dream. And I came here as a four-year-old girl from India that believing in the American dream and this is what they say is taught in law schools, critical race theory. But, thank you, in our little show and tell, I'll show you. A is books. for activist. This is the book that is then becomes what our children get in our school systems. And you can see here, Ainsley, this subtle image wow. of a militant. And this is what they are turning our children into. In a ski mask. Yeah. Militant. Are these books that are in our classrooms here in Virginia? They are in Virginia. Woke baby, gender queer. This is where they then start messing with issues of sexuality. This is kindergarten. Not my idea. Where they literally have said that whiteness is a deal with the devil. Wow. And so what you have is whiteness is a bad deal. She's holding up the book. She's and then a contract with the devil. And, and so what these brave parents have done is they have stood up. And I just hope that everybody watching just sees that courage is contagious and that they too stand up. We hear about these books, but I don't think I've ever seen them held up and realize the age groups that they're targeting. Yeah. Asra, uh, she started Parents Defending Education. Her son graduated from Fairfax. And you have just been, you've been so outspoken. And thank you for standing up for these, these kids, really. The other parents and kids. So Fred is sitting next to you. Fred Reggae, he is with Fights for Schools, two daughters, seventh and eighth graders. It's worth pointing out he's an African-American because of what he says, but go ahead. Even if it costs you everything, your number one agenda and mission in life is to protect your girls. I had one job, Ainsley, and it's my daughters. And first of all, let me say this is the most diverse group of white supremacists that I've ever seen. (laughs) Um, And I want to thank you for having me and thank uh, my fellow panelists here for, for their courage. Um, my, between two ideologies, you have this ideology of America as a great place created by white men a long time ago. These uh, CRT proponents are seeking to replace that with an ideology from a white man. Like, happens to be a German philosopher, uh, critical race theory is part of critical theory and Karl Marx. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm just not... Uh, buying it. If you want me to talk about what philosophy I believe in, there's um, a black preacher from uh, Georgia, mm-hmm. Dr. King. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I, I'd, I'd rather yeah. side with him. And I want my daughters and I want other kids in Loudoun County um, to have the idea and the concept. 
that you can do anything, that you can achieve, you have agency, you have opportunity. The glass is half full, but the glass is also for them, it's half empty. For me, I'd, ra I'd rather look at things as a, a country with a glass that's half full. Yeah, yeah, I think we all agree with you on that. When I don't know we if that doesn't give you chills when a black father is standing up and saying, I have one job. Gave me chills. One job. One job. The protection of my daughters. That's a notion that should ring strongly throughout the country when you know what Loudoun County tried to do with someone's daughter who was raped in a bathroom for girls and not raped by another girl. Though that person was allowed into the girl's bathroom because he believed or thought or used the notion that others believed and thought that he could be a girl. Should give you chills. I didn't hear any dog whistles there, by the way. I heard specific. I heard clarity. And I heard concern. I'm pretty attuned to high notes. I didn't hear dog whistles. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. They moved mountains, but they got a phone to him off the floor of the House. David Schweiker representing Arizona's 6th Congressional District. Eh, representing Universal Common Sense. That's a better title. Oh. David, thanks for I know you've been a busy man today. Yeah, there, there's no common sense around this place. <laughs> That's why you oh. stand and, and out. And thank you for being so patient. Oh, uh, yeah, whatever. You know, whatever. Yeah, no worries well, about that. Last week we did this floor presentation on you know, the debt, the budget, when what was driving it, and it exploded on the Internet. I, I think there's like a million, 300,000. Oh, you sent it to me. It was it was amazing. I think you sent it to me at 800,000. <laughs> now, now we're at 1.3 yeah, well, million. This is great. So, yeah, and, and it, it's actually really hopeful that something has snapped in the American people's mind where all of a sudden they're saying, hey, maybe we should pay attention to what destroys the country. Mm -hmm. um, and so tonight was more of uh, they only could give me they gave me a half an hour of time thought on the floor um uh, thank you speaker pelosi and uh, <laughs> and it was trying to do saying okay i gave you all the bad news last week mm -hmm. let's talk through that there are some things that we could do to bend this that we don't have to have the country collapsed off of a cliff but all the all the decisions are hard and everything the Democrats are doing is they're investing in the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. They're not investing in the things that cure misery and, oh, by the way, would stop the bleeding of debt. David, I want to talk about some of that with you in a second. But first, let me pay you one more compliment. I want you to see how— yeah, don't do that. No, I want to. I want you to see how powerful you were. Only yesterday— you put out that you introduced a resolution to block payoffs to immigrants who illegally crossed our southern, oh. southern border. Well, that was only yesterday that you proposed that. Today, I don't know if you saw it, but Joe Biden denied his administration is going to do it anymore. Propose yeah, more we, things, we, David. We, propose more things. <laughs> Maybe Biden will back well, we off. Made, we made it very clear that we, when, when it would mature, so we had to have the bill for 30 days. That's why we did it so fast we could actually do a discharge petition on the floor, forcing the Democrats to have to take a vote on it. 
And, um, you know, it, now it's hard because you got to get a majority of the members of the body to sign the discharge petition. So we'd have to go find three Democrats, but we would make their lives hell, mm-hmm. it, particularly in some of these, you know, handful of border Democrats who claim that they're outraged, too. So, um, look, it, it's it's, you know, we did it quickly. We did it efficiently. Now we'll see if the White House keeps its promise because there's an army of trial lawyers out there that really yeah. want that cash. Yeah, but you're you know one riot, one ranger. You're 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 our ranger, David. I think yeah, I think I yeah. think I think you'll I think you'll be able to deal with this. Talk to me a little bit about the Democrats' bill and working families. How it will well, do the poor people worse. Yeah, uh, and I'm going to geek out on you just a little bit. Sure. We only know parts of the legislation. This is part of the scam of this year of the Democrats, is they say they're going to do something, but they don't give us much of the details. Um, and so right now they have about a $750 billion funding gap that their, their math doesn't add up. But one of the things they're doing is a whole bunch of like transfer payments, like you know, um, child benefits, okay, you know, particularly for the very poor. But what they're doing is they're also detaching any need to look or have or work. Mm-hmm. And when you start, we know from all over Europe, but lots of good studies, and even last week a big study from University of Chicago, you know, four really smart economists said, you do realize you're about to make the poor poor. Yeah. Because when you send them a check every month, but there's no work requirement. Mm-hmm. You detach the family. You detach the next generation from seeing work. You detach their ability to move up, to gain skills. You actually permanently lock in the poor staying poor. Mm-hmm. There's this concept of, in the United States, and this is a real societal problem, but more, mostly because of Democrat policy, is I'm poor today, but I may be rich later on. Right. They call it social mobility. Right. You know, I, I mean, I used to live in a tiny little cube off of someone's garage for years, mm-hmm. um, and, and got lucky and worked hard. You know, and look and, at the new lieutenant governor well. of Virginia, whose dad came here with less than two dollars. But that's an American story, right? And you, it's really important in a complex market society that people are able to go up and people are able to go down. Yep. What the Democrats are doing is. When you lock in people to permanent poverty, they're going to send them a check to make the poverty a little less miserable, but they're going to lock them there for generations. And it's a really cruel, cynical thing to do because, as the Democrats will say when there's no television camera on, yeah, but they're going to vote for them forever. Um, So it's buying your constituency through misery. And, And that's one of my fixations. I think as conservatives, we don't talk enough about how our philosophy is what lifts the poor, um, you know, and and we all benefit from that. It's, um, it a, seems to me when you look at the tax schemes that the Democrats are trying to unveil to pay for all of this, or at least that which we are able to discern, it does seem that no one has been more vindicated than Margaret Thatcher when she said of the Labor Party in Great Britain that they have no interest in making the poor richer. They just want to make the rich poorer. We're seeing this yeah. in, in sharp relief here, aren't we? Well, to, to, 
Yeah, you're too much. Okay, I love doing this to you. You're just not cynical enough. I love it when you do it to me. Okay. <laughs> All right. And, and well, somewhere there's going to be a bumper sticker. As cynical as no, David hey, Schweikert or something. <laughs> hey, look. Yeah. I'm both cynical, but I also believe um, after yesterday uh, election, there's hope. Yeah. There, there's yeah. hope. We just yeah, yeah. got to stop the bleeding. Yeah. So here's what you do. The Democrats are going to raise taxes on little businesses rather substantially. They're going to crush their ability to invest and become more productive. But on the other hand, they're going to provide a few hundred billion dollars of subsidies to big business and really rich people. So if you're a big business, remember how they say, well, there's going to be a corporate AMT, a corporate alternative minimum tax for big business. But, hey, if you'll buy some solar panels right. and buy a few electric cars, as long as they're made by union shops that um, support the Democratic Party, we're going to give you a bunch of money so you really won't pay that tax. So, but if you're a small business, you're getting your head kicked in because you, you know, you're, you're going to lose certain depreciation and other things. And, oh, by the way, but if you're really rich, you can get all these tax credits. So it's this it's worse than just they're raising taxes and slowing down and crushing the economy. They're turning around and subsidizing the rich yeah. with much poorer people's money. Yeah, there it is. There it is. That's the connection. David Schweikert. And then, and then the Democrats scream at us. That, you know, I mean, it's just so perverse. Well, I'm glad you, uh, you, you don't tire on this, David. And I guess there is a message in last night, and maybe it – is a message we learned from another British prime minister once upon a time. Never, 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 never give in. Um, it's so true. And I was very proud of a lot of the Republicans in Virginia and New Jersey. You bet. That they showed up and they focused and they understood you gain and move power through that ballot box. And they showed up and did it. You bet. David Schweiker, and you do it through the power and force of argument. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you coming by and uh, go back to work. <laughs> I got to stop drinking coffee. Sorry. <laughs> you, know, you picked the wrong day to stop drinking coffee, David. I, you picked the wrong administration. Talking, I, you picked the wrong administration to stop drinking coffee, as Lloyd Bridges oh, said. <laughs> I realize I just I just made myself another cappuccino when we were talking. So. <laughs> All right, come by the studio sometime. We we'll we'll have a, a cappuccino maker installed for you. I love it. All right, David. Bless you. Sometime occasional guest host of mine. We'll call on him to uh, do it again soon. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. I, I don't know why it's any wiser. Someone must think it is. I don't know why it's any smarter or wiser for Democrats, consultants, speechwriters to think that calling half or so of the country deplorable is a bad idea and a losing strategy, but calling them white supremacists and racists is the way to go. Um, you've heard me talk about syntactical saturation before. You use a word so much, you overuse a word so much. You cry wolf falsely with it so often that it loses its importance, its meaning, its uh, penetration. 
which strong words should have. White supremacist is a strong phrase. It should mean something. It should mean something scary. It should mean something frightening. It should mean something that makes you, A, recoil and then want to fight it. And it's been entirely, entirely like the word extremist, like the word racist. It's been entirely attenuated by the liberals, the progressives, and the left in this country by its overuse. Think of Donald Trump, the anti-Semite, for example. Asra Nomani, who led this fight in Loudoun County, she's been on this show before. I've known, I've known of her work for years. As she says in that Ainsley Earhart interview, she's an Indian immigrant. She's an immigrant from India. She just um, she changed her Twitter handle today. It's now Asra Q. Nomani, excuse me, Asra Q. Nomani, Mama Bear, White Supremacist. She writes, I changed my Twitter handle to White Supremacist. We shut down the National School Board Association. It's defamation of parents as domestic terrorists. The woke police now smears voters for Glenn Youngkin as white supremacists. They need to end their racism and bigotry. She's showing them. She's showing them what syntax saturation does. She is now embracing white supremacist as a label on her, as an attack on her, because it shows the idiocy of it. Unless you have no eyes to see or ears to hear, the last thing you could call Asra Q. Nomani is a white supremacist, a supremacist of anything or a white anything. And they just go on painting her that way because the facts don't matter. The party line does. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.